Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello everyone and thanks again for joining us at the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Cole Conniger and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to introduce our next panel, Say Goodbye to the 40-Yard Dash, the Future of NFL Roster Building. Our panelists today are Kevin Dimoff, Chief Operating Officer of the Los Angeles Rams, Nick Casario, General Manager of the Houston Texans, and Brian Burke, Senior Analytics Specialist at ESPN. The panel will be moderated by Kevin Clark from The Ringer. The panel is going to run for 35 minutes and we'll leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please use the chat on the right-hand side of the window for discussions and the Q&A option also on the right side to submit questions. You can also submit questions on Twitter using the hashtag bye 40 With that, I'll turn it over to you, Kevin. Thanks, Cole. Good morning. My name is Kevin Clark. I work for The Ringer. Um, I am thrilled today to be able to talk with three of the best football minds, uh, Nick, Brian, and Kevin. Uh, about the story of modern football, which is analytics and the information that we have now about how teams win and lose games and the players that help teams win and lose games. Um, this is maybe the most fascinating era ever to love football or work in football because this was a historically stubborn sport and now it's changing faster than ever. The sport can reinvent itself yearly and in some facets of the game monthly. And that's why I'm so excited to talk with these guys. Um, I want to talk big picture because we're learning again so much about the sport first. And I want to open up the floor to just a big topic. What is the biggest thing that you guys have learned in the past few years about football because of the analytics, because of the data, because of player tracking, uh, you know, scheme analysis, whatever it is, what have you learned about football that you did not know before? I'll start with you, Kevin. We got a phone ringing. Of course, that, that's the way it goes. Uh, <laughs> it's an early trade call, I guess, for the draft. Um, I think what, what's great is football has always been one of the last groups to try to embrace analytics. And I think what you're learning is there are a lot of smart people who are working on this in a lot of different areas. And a lot of the, the great innovation is coming from outside of the NFL and inside the NFL. And it's trying to blend all of those together. When you turn on a game now, you know, people aren't talking about raw numbers the way they used to about catches and yards and, and yards per carry. They're talking about offensive efficiency and points per drive, you know, and win percentage. And I think we're all trying to blend that into a meaningful way of how we rethink the game. And, and I think that part is, you know, when we sit in draft meetings right now, there are no stats ever discussed. It's about GPS and, you know, it's about efficiency and, and all of these things that, that come in a meaningful way that five years ago, these conversations weren't happening. Uh, and, and I think it's become one of those things that everybody is starting to scratch the surface. Five years ago, not every team had an analytics department. Or if they did, they didn't necessarily talk about it. Now, everybody has multiple people. And I think we're on the very cusp. The next five years, maybe even more fascinating than the previous five. Nick? Yeah, thanks for having uh, me today, Kev. Uh, yeah. Sort of echoing some of the thoughts that Kevin just shared. I think the, the biggest thing over the last two years, right, is the volume of data that is available and the application, right? And really, I think what we've learned um, is it's in every facet of your football operation, right, to some degree. So it could be on the personnel and scouting side, 
I think the, the people that have started to benefit the most and are starting to realize where the application is are the players, right? When you can provide players information that they can utilize and actually gives them some feedback and it's measurable, right? And it shows them a performance uh, metric that they can measure themselves against or their teammate, teammates against. And really it, in the off season is where that could come into play more than any place, right? Because it's a training, you can use it as a training mechanism, right? So it's the availability. There's a mass amount of volume that's out there, right? So then the key is, is the application. And to Kevin's point, the NFL is becoming a little bit more progressive-minded as it pertains to this particular area. And the growth, there's definitely growth and opportunity there. But the biggest thing is just being able to identify something that's usable, something that's tangible, and something that can apply in a multitude of areas within your football operation. Brian, you're the godfather of football analytics. That's what the, the analytics community calls you. So you've been, you know, you've had your mind changed a number of times over the past 20 years, but just in the last few years, have you seen the player tracking and all that stuff? What is that? Uh, how has that changed your perception of football? Yeah, no, that's what I was going to mention is that we're just scratching the surface on the player tracking stuff. And for me personally, as an outsider, one of the last things I could really get into were the X's and O's. Um, so, you know, that, the, the player tracking stuff and the convergence with sort of very modern advanced machine learning is going to make, I think, X's and O's much more accessible to, to the fan. So Nick, I want to start with you because I think that you have one of the most interesting sort of paths to being a GM. Um, obviously you spent the last 12 years as uh, heading up pro personnel, uh, personnel with, with the New England Patriots. Uh, before that you were a scout, you've been an assistant coach, you've been a scouting assistant. And because of that, because of the era in which you came up, uh, you had to learn to adapt to the analytics. You had a lot of tape, you had a lot of traditional scouting methods. And then as you progressed, analytics became more and more, uh, a part of the scouting process. I'm, I'm curious if you could take us on the journey. You know, there's a debate right now between tape versus analytics and the answer for most smart teams seems to be both. Uh, but as you've progressed through the NFL, can you take us through the journey on how you've incorporated the data and, and uh, made it more a part of your scouting process? There's a lot there in that question. I would say just going back to my initial start and experience in 2001. Yeah. So even viewing tape, it was on an old beta deck, right? So yeah. the whole concept of data and analytics, when you're actually using old school beta decks to watch video and then hand drawing, plays like that's where we were 20 years ago right so I think again kind of what we talked about a little bit earlier there's been a little bit more uh, the availability of the information right I think yeah. it's become more available and more useful and more practical um, probably the area where we've seen the most growth and the most utilization is on the player performance side or sports performance side there if you go back even to 15 20 years ago right so when you put together scouting reports of, of opposing teams, right, a lot of that is based on, okay, here's what the, the information tells you. Okay, and this down and distance, this is what their tendency is, right? So there's data that we've been utilizing for a number of years, right? So I think what we've been able to do is maybe get a little more granular, look at like an individual matchup, watch a specific one-on-one -on -one matchup, or watch, be able to say, okay, this player lines up in this specific spot, and when he lines up here, here's what he does, right? So we weren't able to do that however many years ago, right? But now we have the technology and the capacity that is available to us. And again, it's figuring out the, the application and how to utilize that information. Because again, you can just take a vast set of information, a vast set of data. And again, you might really know what you're looking at and then how to interpret it and apply it, right? Because in the end, the most important thing for us is 
does it help us win or how does it help us win, right? Because that's the end goal for all of us, right? Is to take whatever information that we have and be able to apply it to a winning uh, atmosphere, a winning setting, right? So um, again, I think we're on the cusp to Kevin's point. Um, we probably have as much room for growth and trajectory as, as any sport. Um, and again, it's going to be how we're able to incorporate it in sort of our day-to-day uh, functionality. And it's very seasonal, right? In season, there's kind of, it's game specific, it's opponent specific, it's game plan specific. The off season is more on the team building side, right? So how do you incorporate it into different areas? Like that's the most important thing. Each individual and each team has to decide what makes sense for them. Kevin, when you look at all the information that Nick talks about, and we went from almost no information a handful of years ago, especially on the player tracking side, to way too much information for four or five people to, to comb through, where do you even begin? You know, Asking the right questions of the data is maybe the biggest uh, edge I guess you could get in, in modern football. Where do you even begin when you're looking through all that data? And, and sort of how do you coach your team and your analytics department to just even start digging and, and, and what are you looking for? Well, I think the best part that you wind up with is that I think Nick is a personnel evaluator could tell you this. Every personnel evaluator knows the players they hit on that they remember, the players they miss that they remember. We're now far enough into analytics where we can do the same thing. The decisions we made with analytics that worked out, we can look back and refine them. The decisions where maybe we relied on the analytics and it didn't work out, then you send your group back to the lab and say, okay, we need to refine that method, especially in, in personnel, right? I think one of the best things of the past few years with GPS tracking, with the advances in analytics, is we can now look back after four or five years on decisions we made primarily based on analytics and refine them. That wasn't true four or five years ago. Four or five years ago, when you started to make decisions, you were somewhat doing it blind and trusting. And so I think for us as a group, you know, one of the things we, we keep going in the draft is probably the best place for it um, because it's a... It's, a, it's an environment that you control completely, not who gets picked, but in terms of who you pick, right? It's not like somebody else sets up a defense and, you know, you were there to go pick the best player and all of a sudden they didn't make it work. And so, you know, we rely heavily on analytics throughout the draft, but it used to be more probably fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round when our scouts had maybe seen the players one or two times, but our analytics people could look at so many more. Uh, and then you get to, you know, now it's a, we don't ever have first round picks anymore. So we shared that with Nick and his new son. Neither um, do we. You know, uh, but, you know, when we're looking at second rounders, it's all, you know, refined models to that point. And I think one of the great things about the analytics, you know, and the voices those people have in our draft room are the same as our scouts because it's unbiased, right? It's yeah. not that they went in, you know, so hard you know, in any level of sports, football, especially you go in to go watch, you know, someone who's supposed to be a top prospect this year, you're going to go in with the mindset that they're pretty good. Even if the tape says differently, the analytics go in blind. And I think that's where, you know, you start to find some warts, you know, or some holes And the more you do that, you know, you go through and figure out, Hey, you know, we were concerned about this player. We took him anyways. It turns out those concerns were real. Let's keep refining the model. And, you know, we're, and I think the one place where we continue to, to try to solve for is personality, um, you know, learning, you know, character, some of those soft skills and how you measure them, how you evaluate them and how you put that in the data. Cause I, I truly think, you know, the NFL probably spends 
you know, $10 million a team, scouting times 32 team, 320 million. The collective wisdom isn't that wrong on skill set. A lot of the misses come from how people develop, you know, what their capacity is to grow, to learn from 21, you know, through 30. And the better we can get at that, you know, that's going to be closer to the holy grail of analytics. And I think anything we can find, you know, on the athletic side. Real quick, Kevin, just to, to follow up with Kevin just said, it's a, it, what he just articulated is just spot on. And I think really a lot of this, you end up, you have to go back and do it retroactively, right? Because even a player you pick this year, right? Forget about the climate and the dynamic, right? Until you actually have the player in your program and you can evaluate, you know, that player and the metrics on a day-to-day basis, then what you kind of do is maybe go back and look at your model and say, okay, I mean, I would just anecdotally, we did this, uh, I want to say either last off season or the uh, previous off season um, when we were in New England and we looked at a specific position group, right? And we kind of were able to develop a model and the inputs that went into it and then go back and look at the players. If you were to funnel them through that model, okay, where are the success rates? Okay. And here are the attributes that those players shared. And then the players maybe that didn't work out or didn't have those characteristics, like what happened to them, right? So really to use it from a draft as a draft tool, I would say, I don't want to speak for Kevin, but how he feels, but it's probably really difficult, right? Because honestly, every player is a developmental player that's going from college to the NFL. It doesn't matter what program they play and how good they are, how much experience they have. And they're actually had less experience, I would say over the last few years, just given the environment or just the things that, that have transpired, right? So until you actually get the player and have the opportunity to evaluate them, then you can kind of go back retroactively, maybe run them through your model and say, okay, you know what? Wow, this, this is consistent. There's a little bit of a gap here. And we were even talking about this four or five years ago to Kevin's point, right? So now you're starting to kind of think ahead a little bit and try to project. Because again, what we do, what we're doing is total projection, right? It, it, it doesn't matter. Like there's no experts on this. It's an absolute pr- project projection and different programs are built differently right so that how your program is built and structured impacts potentially the growth and development of that player within your program right so you can have all the data and all the statistics available but again a lot of it is just what how is your program built and how are you training and developing that player so that he can optimize his peak performance That's a fascinating subject. And Brian, I want to turn to you because there is no college tracking data like there is in the NFL. And that would answer a lot of the questions we're talking about here, just as far as, okay, we can find out a DB's closing speed or, or, you know, anything, how close the linebacker is to line of scrimmage, whatever. I mean, there's so many things we don't know at the college level. Uh, What a... It's a two-part question. A, uh, what can we look at in college now um, from, from just watching the game and, and, and tracking it? And B, what will college tracking data do as it becomes more prevalent? Yeah, uh, just to dovetail off of some of the things Kevin and Nick just said, you know, you don't need a mathematical model to kind of give you the, the end state answer and say, hey, this is the projection, this is a number, this is this point estimate of how good this one player will be or, or the set of players will be. You can simply use it to, I think Nick mentioned that you can use some of the player tracking stuff to help, uh, you know, reinforce the training of your players. You can do the same thing with your scouts. So you, you can just, you can, you can take, you can take the data, analyze it, take what the scouts did and, and kind of train them and recalibrate them. Say, Hey, I don't know. For example, hey, when you say a player is a nine in this attribute, he really turns out to be a seven or when you say he's a seven, he's actually a six. So, so you, you can kind of scale and, and refine uh, their skills. 
uh, as far as, yeah, co college traits now, you, you have to rely on the qualitative. So, you know, for now, obviously, you know, scouting grades, uh, scouting reports, those are going to dominate and they should dominate. So, you know, like the, um, like the, the topic of the panel is like the 40, the 40 yard dash. Those things do kind of matter. They do help in the projections. They, they help the accuracy, but the scouting grades dominate and, and they should. Um, but you can, you know, one of the advances in analytics is to take qualitative numbers, take those qualitative grades, and then turn those into quantitative things. Um, when the college tracking stuff does come online, uh, it, it's really going to be a watershed. So, you know, right now we have the, the pro level tracking stuff and, and we're doing a lot of really great stuff. We're really still just scratching the surface though. Um, but what we're doing is, um, you know, preparing for the day when the college tracking data does come online. And when that happens, that's really where, that's really where the money is going to be. So teams are going to need those models. They're going to need analysts that can make sense of the, 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 tracking data, you know, I'm not just talking about max speeds and, and things like that, but how, how receivers can generate separation or, you know, how, how safeties react uh, to, to a quarterback, you know, preparing to pass and things like that. Uh, that's there's going to be a huge payoff when, uh, when that comes online. Kevin, I want to ask you about just generally, you know, Brian mentioned the train, the scouts part and, you guys have an organization where you have a robust analytics department and you have obviously have the scouting department and then, then the coaches as well. And you seem to make that all work together. And I know that at the beginning of the analytics era of football, there was a bit of a divide in some, in some buildings between the numbers guys and the tape guys or whatever it is. How did you get them all to mesh? Um, how do you get them in the same room and on the same page? And, and what is the, what are the steps there if you're trying to do that as an organization? Well, look, I think it starts with, you know, our GM, Les Snead, is a big believer in building out the department. He's the one who's the driving force. And so, therefore, that's where, you know, there is no divide between scouts and analytics because it's all blended together. And if you were to look at our draft board right now, our analytics grades are right there next to our scout grades in no way that anybody who was looking at the board could differentiate, right? It's a complete picture and all of the data points come in. But it comes from, you know, I, I think one of the, you know, and Nick would – I'm sure echo this, the greatest competitive advantage in terms of analytics and data and sports is winning because it means you keep the same group, which means you get to keep refining those processes, which means you can go back and look at, I think to Brian's point, Hey, this scout's really good about receivers, but he's terrible about defensive line. And you can keep, and you can show them that data, but not like, Oh, you're about to be fired because a new GM's coming in, but this is how we get better. And then your coaches, get used to that data. You know, we're fortunate. We hired a 30 year old as a head coach. So he was more than willing to embrace kind of the analytics and the movement. And then, you know, you kind of, but it's funny, right? We had Wade Phillips for a while who probably wasn't in, you know, the analytics offense, you know, office. Then you get to Brandon Staley who was there three times a day. Right. And so I think as the league gets younger, you know, from a coaching perspective, from a scout perspective, from a GM perspective, I think those walls will come tumbling down, but it's also about efficacy. The more we learn, the better our decisions make, the more that there's a bias towards a recency bias towards analytics working, you know, versus a very much old school. And I think, you know, Moneyball did such a bad job because it set up this all-time debate between scouts yeah. and analytics. I don't think it's ever been that pronounced. Um, I just think that there's a danger, you know, in trying to say there are divides. It's showing people where it works and then also still reinforcing 
hey, some of the things you need from scouts, you know, how they learn, you know, what their background is, what their work ethic is, you know, is really important and stressing that where they can contribute value versus where machine learning is picking up some of their blind spots. Yeah, real quick, Kevin. So yeah. really what Kevin is really talking about, each program, right, you have systems and processes. It's all about systems and processes, right? And then how sustainable are those over the course of a long period of time, right? So there's a certain degree of continuity that's been in place in LA, right? So you're able to grow and enhance those systems and models as you go, right? So we're kind of in the infantile stages, right? We're essentially starting over to a certain extent with some of our processes and systems, right? So almost we're like a tech startup, right? We're in Silicon Valley. It's a, a number of new people. We have some processes that have been in place, but we're looking to modify and refine those as best we can, right? And again, it's never about scouting versus analytics, right? It's really a hybrid model. The teams that are right. probably going to have the most success are the ones that are able to develop sort of this hybrid um, mode of thinking. And scouts are a valuable piece of what you're trying to do relative to the team building, right? Because what you're doing, you're making decisions based on information, right? So where do you get that information, right? You get that information from the school, which is based on relationships. So there's that one-on-one -on -one human interaction that's very valuable because what you're trying to do when a scout goes into the school and talks to a coach or talks to his source is really talk about, okay, how does he learn? How does he work? How does he adapt? How does he adjust? Okay. What have you found a, a, a technique has been successful to teach him and get him to develop, right? Like you're not going to get that from a model, right? Or data. Okay. So that information is valuable, right? And then the evaluation of the player is important. And then you have all these other inputs coming in, right? Based on the data, right? Where you have to kind of cross check, which each team this time of the year is doing that, right? Because we've had, I don't know, a month of workouts, right? So there's probably been, I don't know, 100 to 125 schools that have had their pro days, right? So all that data and information is coming in and it's coming in later than it normally does because we had to have the scouting combine, right? So again, you're trying to merge all this information and collect the data and then get to something that's useful. And ultimately you're trying to create a picture of the player and how that player is gonna project into your program. And here are the things that we're gonna to have to do in order to give that uh, individual an opportunity to have success. To follow up with that, Nick, this is maybe the weirdest draft of all time. You know, people are saying it's the baseball draft in football. There's just so little information to go off of. Does that make you more likely to try to rely on numbers? Do you have to rely more on gut feel? Are you just, is it a little more, and I would never say this, you know, haphazardly, but it's a little more guessing where you're just like, okay, this guy is one trait we like. We have, you know, there's, there's a lot of unknowns in this draft. What, what happens when there's a lack of information in this type of draft, Nick? Uh, Again, you just have to go back to whatever your process that you trust, right? So be consistent. You may have less data, less inputs that you have to evaluate, right? Or have the capacity to evaluate. As an example, some players may not have even played football this year or played two right. games, right? So they played last year, then they played one or two games this year, okay? And they might be an underclassman, right? So you just don't have a lot of information that's available. You have to utilize whatever. Look, we all have the same information and we all have the same resources that are available to us, right? So you just have to maximize those opportunities and just try to take advantage of the resources that you do have. Again, going back to kind of what the panel is, the title of the panel, I don't want to say the 40 is like the least important number, but quite frankly, it might be the least important number specifically to certain positions, right? Where yeah. it doesn't have any relevance. Like how fast an offensive lineman runs is really kind of useless, right? So that the, the whole notion of the 40 and its importance with skilled players, okay, maybe gives you some idea, maybe confirms 
some of the things that you saw on tape, well, I think this guy's fast. Okay, he ran fast. Well, I think this guy's slow. Boy, he ran fast. Okay, so then where's the delta, right? What's the gap? Those are the, one, the, hard, the, 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 the players that you have to maybe spend a little more time on to arrive at whatever your conclusion is, understanding that, I mean, look, people can run the numbers on this, but to a certain extent, the draft is 50-50 proposition, right? And then the later you get in the draft, the percentages go down even further, right, relative to the number of players that are going to make an impact and they're going to last. So, again, I mean, we're talking to a certain extent a coin flip. So there's some risk involved, but it's risk assessment, it's risk analysis, and just taking advantage of the opportunities to, of the resources and the information you have at your disposal and try to make a good decision to move forward. Uh, I want to ask all three of you this, but I'll start with Nick. What are the predictive analytics for you? It could be pro day, could be, you know, the models that we're talking about. When it, if, if it's not the 40-yard dash, it's what? Uh, I would say some of the, like Kevin talked about, I would say some of the intangible elements relative to the football traits and characteristics. Because again, when you look at the arc of a year, right? So it's very cyclical. So in season, okay, you're going to have, you know, this is the process, right? Then you get the off season. Okay, here are the things that are going to be required of the players. What you're trying to figure out is who can sustain whatever their level of performance is over long periods of time, right? So who has the mental stamina? Who has the mental capacity? Who has the ability to handle kind of the day-to-day, okay, get up, start over, you know, go through an arc of a week, game on Sunday, and then restart that process, right? So is that based on like how fast the player runs or how high he jumps? No, there's some other things that are going to be a little bit more important. So I'm not saying the numbers aren't important, right? It gives you a, a benchmark and at least you have a baseline of where the player is. And then again, going back to using the, uh, the tracking elements like Brian talked about, right? So again, everybody, you know, when they put the speed, this guy ran 22 miles an hour, right? Like that looks great. And what that means. Okay. You're looking for the ability of that player to repeat that high speed. Okay. So how do you train that? Right. So that goes into your training and how you, okay. Then you show the the player, the tracking information. Okay. You had X amount of high speed um, exertions this day, right? Okay. Here was your max speed. Okay. You maintained it for this, right? So again, you start to see like how all this kind of can be incorporated into the overall development of the player. So again, there's just so many inputs that go into an overall player's growth and development. The 40, again, is just one thing. It's one component, but there's some other, I would say, non-tangible things that really are going to determine the success of that player over the course of a long period of time. Kevin, I know that you have, you guys have used some of the sparse player tracking at the college level. What have you guys found predictive with, with, with regards to prospects? Yeah, I think what you find is it's different at each position based on the way you're coaching and, and the scheme you run. Right. And that's where I think the, you know, the longer you have winning and stability in your organization, the more you refine it based on what your coaches and scouts come together. So for some positions, it may be, you know, the 40 may be predictive because you're looking at long speed, you know, at other positions, it may be about power, whether that's broad jump or or vertical jump or the explosion, Uh, you know, for receivers, it may be, you know, arm, arm length and catch radius you know, but that combines with height. And I think it gets back to one of your earlier questions. You put it all into the soup and that's where the analytics group can say, Hey, we used to think that this was really important for defensive backs, but in the end it's not, they can. And I think one of the heuristics that you're seeing break down most is size, right? I mean, now, you know, when you look at someone like Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray never would have been the first overall pick 10 years ago. It just would have never been thought of that that's possible. But then you look at all, velocity and movement and where they create in the pocket. And I think the places where measuring in used to be a huge difference 
now has completely changed the game. Look, part of that's you get from college the way they develop players. And now players of all sizes are playing everywhere on the field at each position. And so I think that's because people are saying, look, the most important thing for an outside linebacker may be 10-yard burst. Uh, and therefore, they can be six foot, 230. If they have that 10-yard burst, will work. You know, and I think we're throwing all of those heuristics that a lot of, I would say, of the old school 80s and 90s coaching philosophies might have done. You know, the, the Parcells rules that used to exist. Right. I'm sure Nick has probably, you know, dealt with <laughs> in England. You know, some of those may not apply anymore just because of the way the game's played. I think that's where the predictive analytics, we are down to position-specific predictive analytics in our building. But, you know, what's important on the short shuttle you know, versus the three cone versus the 40 may is completely dependent upon which position you're evaluating. Just Brian, real gonna... quick on this, just real quick on this, Kat, this is awesome because this is going back to kind of what we talked about a little bit earlier, a little anecdote. When we built our model, I don't want to mention the position, but we looked at a position, right? And there's a, you know, a view that, okay, length is important for this position, right? Whether it's height, whether it's arm length, right? We actually went back and looked at that data and information there wasn't a correlation, right? So then this goes back to like your scouts in their mind, they're watching a player and you see it in the reports, he lacks length. And, you know, if you're thinking that length is an important criteria, right? That's going to predict success. Well, the position we actually studied and looked at said, actually not like some of our best players, like they're, they didn't have the requisite quote unquote length, but they were some of our best players, right? So that's where you can start to use that. What you think is predictive and then when you actually go back and study it and benchmark it, then it tells you, okay, wait a minute, let's take another look at this. So I think that's what it just forces you to do. Just go back and maybe take another look and look at it through a different lens. That's all. And, and right, I'm just to I'm sorry. a quick point. That's where you get to, you know, inefficiencies in the draft and being able to draft better because, yeah. you know, in Nick's study, you know, the Patriots may say, Hey, not usually those traits are highly correlated with high picks. As you get in the fourth and fifth round, if you know that length isn't an issue and there's a good player who may not have length and you take that player because you've done the study, your hit rate in the fourth round is now going to be better. Because whether we like it or not in the draft rounds one through seven, if you just draft based on athletic ability, the NFL is very good at measuring athletic ability. And so that's why, you know, know, you can't exceed the base rate very often in the sixth round because people know six rounders aren't as athletic. Now, if you were looking for different traits and that's the way you know systems have evolved if you look at cover three for the seahawks they wanted longer guys maybe who couldn't run and richard sherman you could find those guys in the fifth round you know the cover two teams could get shorter corners who couldn't run you know three fours could get fatter guys because you are looking for inefficiencies in the draft and development system that that study ultimately gives you and until the league catches up maybe to those studies you'll have a short-term window where you have a draft advantage that's fascinating. Um, Brian, I, I want to slightly tweak the question because so much of, of the last five years has been ruled by just getting access to the data and some data we don't have yet. As we talked about, there's no college tracking. Um, if you could get any data right now um, and just open it up to the world or open it up to everybody who loves football or whatever it is, what would you do and what would make the player evaluation process easier? And that includes maybe even changing the combine. Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> What, you know, like we mentioned, the college tracking data um, uh, would, would be it. Um, but let me go back to the last question. Um, yeah. I, I know we're, we're, we're 
beating a dead horse, but um, let's talk about these metrics for a second. I think uh, the pendulum has swung uh, quite a bit. So in both directions. So we kind of, when the combine became like a TV event and all the, the numbers became available online, people really gravitated that and they assume, okay, faster the wide receiver is, the better he's going to be in the pros. And then like folks like me came along and we did some pretty simple analysis. We like, we said, how, 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 how good did this, did this player turn out to be in the pros? And then let's compare that to uh, his combine metrics. And what we found is there's like no correlation. So there, there's, you know, between um, even things like you would think would matter, like 40 yard dash and receivers or cornerbacks and things like that. And there's, there's a couple of really kind of profound reasons for that. Uh, One of them, let's just take like the vertical, vertical jump, like uh, offensive linemen, like the last thing you really would expect an offensive line lineman to do is kind of jump vertically, right? There's just no part of his job that requires that. But, um, and let's say his, um, and of course the vertical jump doesn't correlate with how, how you know, good a player he becomes in the pros. But when you start to combine these metrics, uh, so we, the, that's what I mean, the, the pendulum swinging back. So we have more advanced modeling techniques now and we can combine it with other information like, like scout, scout grades. And let's just take uh, you know, the offensive lineman and the vertical jump. So if you, have a, if you combine weight and vertical jump, now you're, you're, you're getting something because now, of course, the, the heavier guys have a harder time jumping high. That makes sense, right? It's just, you know, physics and, and the lighter guys can jump higher. But when you have a, like a heavier, bigger, stronger guy who can jump high, now there's a lot of power in his legs. So I think, I think the pendulum swing back the other way and some of these metrics, it kind of despite the, the, the name of the panel here, some of these metrics uh, really matter in, in ways we didn't suspect. Wow, that's really fascinating. Um, I want to go around and, and kind of open this up because I think that the game, as much as it's changed in the last five years, the next five years are going to be even more incredible because uh, there's going to be basically every organization is going to staff up, even if they have a robust uh, analytic staff at this point. And I just want to know what where we think this is going. Um, and I'll start with you, Kevin. In five years, uh, what's one thing you think NFL teams will have a handle on? Um, big picture because of this data uh, and just what does the, what will we be talking about at Sloan in, in five years? Yeah, look, I think we've spent a lot of time on this panel talking, you know, because it's April about draft and predictive analytics. I think the in-game strategies uh, will evolve greatly, you know, over the next few years. You're seeing that already, you know, the, the wave of, you know, don't punt on fourth down, you know, has, you know, certainly come to the league. I think faster than others going for, for two point conversion. And so I think ultimately what you're going to look at is, you know, the way the game is played will change uh, and, and how coaches, you know, make those decisions. Now, some of that will be ultimately whether you are allowed to tap into some of that information on the sidelines or in the booth, right? It's really hard, you know, for a coach who's a play caller to, you know, be looking at their sheet, trying to think of a good play and also know that there's a, 28% chance that if I throw an out route here on second and eight, that this is going to work, right? That takes someone in the booth reminding them of that. Right now, you're not allowed you know, to use those computers to have that data to go through. So I think what will be interesting as you know, the data progresses, whether there is a movement you know, to allow for greater information on the sidelines and in the coaching booth, and I think that will unlock a ton more of in-game strategy similar to what you see, you know, potentially in other sports. And then all of a sudden, you know, on, you know, everybody 
what will happen, right? What's the optimal play call on first and 10? You know, we can have everybody beating the drum that play action, you know, is best on first down. But if that becomes prevalent, how do defenses start to then play first down? You know, you see that far more. I mean, we saw that, uh, you know, with our team. Everybody used to play the Sean McVay offense in, you know, nickel defense. And then they realized that maybe that's – we would run it. And maybe that wasn't the best way to do it. This league is so smart. People adapt so quickly that what we're going to be talking about in five years is adaptations to the data now, you know, schemes that we're learning and how coaches are adapting five years from now. With Sean in particular, obviously he's not not the most aggressive coach for it on fourth down. Um, how how do those conversations go? Are you just totally comfortable with that when you have those uh, fourth down conversations? Because he's so innovative in ninety nine percent of those ways, but he has not yet kind of uh, be- become comfortable in that area. Well, look, I think you know one of the things you look at. I, I saw a stat the other day that he's second all time, I think, in you know wins above replacement for coaches. However, that's measured right now to to Bill Walsh. Um, so the conversation is something like you should go for it more on fourth down. He says, you should shut up. And I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> you know, right. Like, you know, it, it doesn't, it, and look, what, what's ironic about Sean though. And I think this is what's strange about football. He is conservative on fourth down. There, there is no doubt when you look at the data, yet one of the, the biggest play calls of his career were playing the Cowboys in the playoffs and on fourth and one up eight points. More than goal from the one. He runs it. No coach in the history of the NFL in that scenario had ever run it before. We score a touchdown, you know, go ahead, ultimately to wind up, you know, losing to Nick. So it doesn't, but, you know, that is the point where, you know, there's a gut feel too about, you know, coaches who are play callers, which is happening more and more, you know, they have a feel for, do I have a play? Do, you know, does this play work against the defense? And does it fit the analytics and the metrics of the situation? It's far more than, hey, the data says I should go for it. You know, if you haven't succeeded in running the ball, going for it on fourth and short may not seem as attractive as it does in the model. And I think Brian would be the first to tell you, these models are predicated on doing the same, you know, doing the correct thing each time. And then you have a 57% chance if you do it 100 times during the year. It's not, hey, if I do it once in a certain scenario, I have a 57% chance. That's the data for the whole league for the whole year. And so it does not always correlate necessarily to that exact decision. We're going to get to the Q&A here in a second. Nick, uh, last question for you. The same, same general question. Uh, in five years, what does this look like? What do you want it to look like? And, and what would you like to have data on? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take a little different angle on this relative to what Kevin discussed. I think on the training of our players on the sports performance side and the – Again, this is difficult to do, but the predictive analytics relative to injury prevention and, and games lost based on injury relative to how you train the athlete, right? And the inputs that go into that, right? Does a player have an imbalance, which, you know, some teams are using this, whether it's force play technology or you want to measure an individual's strength, right? Are they actually getting stronger, right? Okay, what is that based on? Is it based on, okay, he does 225 like 40 times, right? Does that measure his strength or... Is it how quickly he actually moves the bar, okay? How forcefully, how explosively he does that? And having technology that enables you to look at that, and then you can show that to the player. So I would say taking it away from the field, really more in the, the player development and athlete development relative to their performance, I think that's where the opportunity potentially you have continually to grow. And I think – more teams are starting to incorporate that into their, I would say, off-season program. 
And again, you're, what you're trying to do is provide useful information to the player so they can actually see, okay, well, you know what? It looks like you might have a little bit more strength in one leg relative to the other, but here's this information that actually shows you that, right? Okay, and here's what we're going to do to correct it, right? And then they actually, and then they see that, okay, and then they say, oh, you know what? That makes sense. Okay, some players want more data and more information and can process it. Other players, again, take it in in, in small pieces, right? So how do you disseminate that information to give them an opportunity to learn and grow, right? So I would kind of take it off the field and put it more into the sports performance and then all the areas within sports performance, right? Okay. So the nutrition component, right? How that affects what you, what you eat affects your performance, right? Your sleep patterns, right? So there's these massive amounts of information and data that are available, but that they're ultimately going to help the player or, you know, make them understand here. If you do this, this will actually help you. Okay. On Sunday. And here's why. So I would say over the next, however many years, I think it looks like where this is headed from, from that standpoint. So we have a few uh, viewer questions. We'll start with this one. As the amount of data collection grows, should teams be committing more resources now to analytics departments? And how will that look? You know, I think one of the big questions is similar to the salary cap 20 years ago, guys, where people came in at the ground floor and then became GMs five, 10 years in. When does that happen for analytics folks? Um, when is the into the next analytics GM, stuff like that? Uh, I'll open it up to the floor. Does anyone have, have thoughts on how these uh, organizations should start staffing up at, as this grows? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. I think the most important thing is, is just getting good, smart people that can work within a team environment. And again, a lot of this is going to be, I would say, a hybrid type model, right? So yeah. if you have somebody in that position, they have to be able to process and understand all that information and be able to have a discussion with whether it's the coaching staff, whether it's the scouting staff, right? So you can grow your department, right? But is it the law of diminishing returns or is there like a, a certain amount? Okay, we want to, you know, this is how big it needs to be. Here's why. And this is what we're looking for, right? So understanding what are you trying to ascertain from that group and department? Again, because all that information is going to get funneled through and processed, and then who it goes to and gets disseminated to will be important. So again, it's about usable information that you can actually apply that actually gives you the opportunity to win. Like if you can think it through that lens, that's the best way to, to, to approach it. Kevin? Look, I mean, I think the answer is, you know, I think if you look at the GM path and, you know, taking that point, because I, I think Nick's exactly right. You know, if we're going to keep changing out GMs every three years, you know, ultimately, <laughs> you know, I think across the league, yeah. you know, you're going to wind up saying either you run out of candidates or you need to go look in a different place. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, I think the hardest part for, you know, analytics inclined GMs as they build it up is there's so much skepticism. Yeah. In the communities they walk into that any, you know, as soon as they lose, people want that as validation that it doesn't work. The same way salary cap GMs have found that, you know, as well. What you need as a GM is someone who is a leader of a group who can blend every aspect of your organization together and has tremendous EQ. And I think the, the most important thing for an analytics inclined, you know, group person who's walking into sports football right now is don't be so you have to be able to have a conversation with the GM the coaches, all of those people, and be able to have give and take and, you know, really have that true EQ to go with the data, because that's going to be what separates you know, the smartest person who can't figure out how to communicate with 40 people is not going to have the same success as someone half as smart, but has really good communication skills. Brian, if Kevin, you were running an yeah. NFL team, what direction <laughs> would you go in? 
Kevin, you and I were, were joking the other day about how the, the teams were just plucking analysts off the stage at the big data bowl yeah. um, at, at the combine a couple of years ago. And uh, it, it really is amazing to see how teams are staffing up and analysts are in demand. Um, and uh, <laughs> my idea was a, uh, a draft for analysts. So <laughs> not a salary cap, but just, just yeah. a draft. <laughs> yeah. Um, last question. Uh, and and I'll, I'll open up to all three of you guys. Uh, there's a question about the analytics being done in personality evaluations. Um, obviously there's been some, some testing on the front end. There's been some testing even for personality types or learning types. Once they get into the building after the draft, I'm curious if anyone um, has had success failures or anything like that with just trying to uh, use analytics to decipher just either whether that's a personality type or, or uh, how they'll play or how they'll, they'll process. Again, I think it's taking the information and, you know, if you want to develop a model, right? So you can do, I would, you know, psychological testing currently for draft eligible prospects, right? And here's what, whatever your mechanism is, right? There's a couple different tests that are out there. Each team has their own uh, test that they utilize, right? Okay, so it gives you some output. Here's what it says, right? His intelligence is this. Okay, then you benchmark it with the information that you have from your internal sources, Right. And then what you have to do is really what you want to be able to do is three, four years into your program, assuming that they're going to be there for a long period of time, try to rerun that test, right? And then see what the results, right? So those are the things where you can utilize some of the psychological components and elements, because again, you've had them in a controlled environment, assuming you have the same staff where the coaching is consistent, the techniques are consistent, the response is consistent, just the overall arc and flow of what you do is consistent. And then the player's response rate within that window, then you'd be able to maybe look at those two pieces of data, right? Okay, draft three, four years in, okay, what does it say? And then try to see if there's gaps. And then you can utilize that moving forward in terms of your scouting process, right? That would be one way to probably be that you'd be able to do something like that. I think one of the greatest places we can advance is, you know, football is like no other business. We are hiring 21 and 22 year olds out of college and expecting growth from them. That's one place where we can all learn a lot from other industries, you know, in terms of, you know, learning capacities, personality profiles, teamwork profiles, you know, it is not just in sports. This is, you know, a problem as every company is trying to get more efficient, you know, in their hiring, you know, how do we get better at predicting, you know, what's going to happen with these people? And I think it's starting earlier, right? Like, this year, because of the pandemic, no one's taking SATs or ACTs. As that starts to go away, how do we start to assess learning that is more fair across the board to people from different educational systems, their capacity, and how, how much better can we get at measuring someone who may not have had that training you know, that, that others had, you know, but still saying they have an amazing capacity to learn and to grow? I think that's going to be the biggest advance uh, that we can make. Brian, is there a next frontier with that? Because, you know, you hear so much. I know there's there's companies who are trying to measure instincts on the field and stuff like that. Where is this going? No, I mean, my comment would be be very, very cautious about using psychological research. I mean, I I don't I was I've been trying to think of a way to put this gently, but the entire field of psychology is in disarray. none None of their studies replicate except for one part of personality, which is IQ, but that's, that's a separate thing. It just doesn't replicate. These studies are, are being retracted left and right. And there's a lot of snake oil out there. There's, there's some, um, 
you know, there's just bad incentives, I think, in, in part of the academic world, especially in these kind of soft sciences like psychology. So I would just be very cautious with those kinds of things. I, I agree it, it's one of the most important things, you know, if you could measure, you know, how, how you know, these personality aspects that, that are desirable in a player, um, but there, there's just no good way to do that. You gotta love Brian on an MIT Zoom plugging against academia and science and saying people <laughs> should go more to technology. I mean, I don't know how much they paid you for that, Brian, but it's genius. No, no, yeah. I'll be honest. There's there there are good analysts out there and they're and they're bad analysts and, and the incentives in that world are 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 not good. So I, I I would not trust it. Well, that's that's the place to end then. Um Nick Casario, Kevin Demoff, Brian Burke, thank you so much. This was amazing insight and I really appreciate it. And all, all the viewers tuning in. Um this has been, is it what we call what would we call? We said goodbye to the 40 yard dash. That's all I know. That whatever the panel is called, the 40 yard dash is, is over and that's it. Mission accomplished. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thank Thanks, you. Kevin. Thanks. Yep. Thanks. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.